I am Chris McLaughlin, and this is Pastorally Correct, where I share my perspective as one pastor among many on contemporary headlines, trends, and all things ministry-related with believers who are interested in better understanding and living out a biblical worldview. Our first article today comes from ABC News, and it was written by Bill Hutchinson and published on October 11th, and the title simply reads, Death Came from Sea, Air, and Ground, a Timeline of Surprise Attack by Hamas on Israel. As I read from this article, it it begins with October 7th at 6.30 a.m. in Israel, saying, Air raid sirens began sounding in Jerusalem around 6.30 a.m. local time, warning citizens of the attack in progress and to immediately take cover. An estimated 2,200 rockets were fired towards southern and central Israel, including Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, by the Hamas militants, according to the Israeli uh, Defense Forces. Meanwhile, Hamas claimed at least 5,000 rockets were fired, all landing in southern and central Israel. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're listening to this episode, you might wonder what exactly is happening in Israel and what should Christians think of what's going on? There are a lot of Christians today who are wrestling with biblical prophecy and asking, is this a fulfillment of what the Bible claims will happen in the end end times and in biblical prophecy? We're going to talk about that question in in just a little bit. But before we get there, I want to talk about a few overarching principles and responses that believers ought to have as it relates to this subject. So let me begin with the first challenge, and I'm going to give you three. And the first one is this, Christian, the world is watching, speak with moral clarity. As we continue reading this article, it speaks of the pure evil that is taking place in Israel today and has taken place over the weekend. And it says thousands of missiles fired from Gaza streaked through the sky and began raining down on indiscriminate targets in Israel, sparking terror and leaving hundreds of bodies in the streets of cities and buildings decimated. Simultaneously, hundreds of armed fighters of the terrorist group, many on motorcycles, followed bulldozers that breached fences separating Israel from Gaza and charged in the cities, taking Israeli soldiers off guard and gunning down citizens. As those under attack rushed to safe rooms and bomb shelters, groups of terrorists infiltrating the country marched into towns, opening fire on homes and killing Israeli citizens at random. Militants burst into houses, shooting residents, begging for their lives, and taking others, including women, children, and the elderly hostage, driving the terrified captives back into Gaza as many of them screamed for help. Additionally, it continues reading a music festival where hundreds of Israeli young people danced through the night into the break of dawn suddenly became a shooting gallery for the Hamas militants who arrived in vans with their guns blazing, mowing down 260 partygoers and abducting others. The pictures that have resulted from the activities and the actions of Hamas and Israel have been devastating. Those pictures of buildings that have been toppled, of bodies in the streets, of vehicles that were left abandoned at that music festival are devastating. As we wrestle with what has happened and try to make sense of it all, we are reminded that we live in a fallen world where great evil exists. And what we are speaking of today is a great evil. And it's important that we designate it as such and that we continue to speak with moral clarity and condemnation as it relates to the actions of a terrorist organization. Even as I say those words, however, I note that I have read disturbing accounts of moral equivalence wherein the actions of Hamas are justified 
or at a minimum, the moral equation is skewed by circumstances in the historical context of the reestablishment of an Israeli state in 1948. I have read a number of posts, and I've seen people hint at least or imply, sometimes outright state, that Israel deserved what has happened, that the Israeli people deserve what has happened. But consider what has happened. On Saturday, Saturday morning, they woke up to missiles being sent into their hometowns. Their doors kicked in, hostages taken, women raped, people killed, young people at a music festival slaughtered, shot at, at point-blank range in some places and at, at some points, and, and some individuals taken hostage. And you might have seen the posts, the social media posts, and the cries and the prayers of families of those who have been abducted on social media platforms, on news uh, outlets. It's a devastating reality. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be able to speak of these things as being evil, because they are. If, for some reason, or whatever reason, we would try to skew the moral equation or somehow how justify the actions of a terrorist organization, then our moral compass has completely been abandoned. Of Jesus Christ, when we speak of morality, of what does it mean to do just? What does it mean to do something that is good? What, what is wrong? What is bad morally? When we describe that uh, equation, we speak of an objective morality grounded in the character of God. And so when we talk about these actions and we ask, are they good? Are they bad? We can simply ask the question, is this what God is like? And the question overwhelmingly, or the answer to that question overwhelmingly is no, this is not what God is like. The group responsible for this, and they took credit for it immediately following the actions uh, that they perpetuated, the group Hamas, they have been recognized as a terrorist organization by the United States and by other countries since the 1990s. This group, they explained their rationale and, and, and their reasoning behind why they did this. Their uh, military leader, Mohammed Daif, uh, who's the commander-in-chief of Hamas's military arm, uh, he said this, and it's quoted in the article that I have already read from. It says, the Zionist colonial occupation occupied our Palestinian homeland and displaced our people, destroyed our towns and villages, committed hundreds of massacres against our people, killing children, women, and elderly people, and demolishing homes with their inhabitants inside in violation of all international norms, laws, and human rights conventions. It's as Mohammed Daif said in his statement. This is not to be shocking to us when we consider Hamas's history. Their founder, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, uh, his initial aim, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, uh, was to create an Islamic state on the land now comprising Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, a goal later reaffirmed in the Hamas Charter a year later. So these actions, this is the justification that they provide for it, and there is no ambiguity here. The actions that they have committed are evil, despite whatever excuse or justification they might provide to the contrary. But we, when we speak of a group, of course, we are not simply speaking of some random entity. We are talking about individuals. Individuals are significant to consider because individuals are moral agents. That is, their activity is either good or bad. I've already noted their military leader, Mohammed Daif, uh, 
additionally, their political leader is Ismail Hania, and uh, he has been their leader for some time, and justifying these actions and, and speaking out in very hateful ways against the Israeli people, these sort of actions, these words should be condemned by God's people. And so today, as I speak to you, the Christian, the world is watching, again, speak with moral clarity. As we speak with moral clarity, however, we understand that there are those who would oppose the follower of Jesus, who would speak to anyone who is an adherent to any faith tradition and somehow blame uh, all of the evils on the world, not simply this unique encounter on the Christian, I would challenge you today second as we consider our response to give an appropriate response to those who will offer the familiar criticism that religion is responsible for all of the evils in the world today. I've seen this meme show up on social media sites uh, anytime there is this sort of encounter or there is this sort of conflict between people, especially when it's along ideological or religious lines. But it simply reads, science sends people to space, religion sends people into war. This sort of belief system assumes that science, which is merely a discipline of observation, testing, and replication, is somehow uh, ideologically atheistic. Uh, that is, that somehow uh, science uh, is in opposition to religion. Or there is some conflict between religion and science, and if we could just get rid of religion, that actions like this remind us that religion is something that belongs in a world that we have long since moved beyond, and as as cultures, we can reach new heights and, and reach new, new thresholds of human thriving if only we can move beyond religion. If only it were that simple and the reality of sin did not exist. When people speak in these terms, they have abandoned the historical reality of the expressions of atheism that have resulted in gross human rights violations and massacres. In fact, the history of the 20th century especially was marred by totalitarianism, especially atheistic regimes who imposed their belief systems upon cultures and upon people groups, forcing them to either convert to their belief system, their atheistic belief system, or to suffer the consequence through torture, imprisonment, and or death. I want to read for you today from our second article, and this article is titled, Why Stalin Tried to Stamp Out Religion in the Soviet Union. It was written by Natasha Frost and published on originally on April 23, 2021, but updated just this past August 4th. And it begins with the era of communist rule began in Russia in 1917. Religion was seen as a hindrance to a thriving socialist society. That sounds just like what I said people are indicating by the memes that they are circulating on social media platforms. It continues. As Karl Marx, co-author of the Communist Manif Manifesto, declared, communism begins where atheism begins. Joseph Stal Stalin, as the second leader of the Soviet Union, tried to enforce militant atheism on the republic. The new socialist man, St Stalin argued, was an atheistic one, an atheist one, free of the religious chains that had helped to bind him to class oppression. 
From 1928 until World War II, when some restrictions were relaxed, the totalitarian dictator shuttered churches, synagogues, and mosques and ordered the killing and imprisonment of thousands of religious leaders in an effort to eliminate even the concept of God. It says he saw this as a way of getting rid of a past that was holding people back and marching towards the future of science and progress, says the historian Stephen Merritt Minor, author of Stalin's Holy War, Religion, Nationalism, and Alliance Politics. I need to continue reading for just a moment because I, I think it's important to continue to understand exactly where this, where this went. It says, uh, churches, synagogues, mosques made into museums of atheism. Says at the same time, the sacked churches, synagogues, and mosques were transformed into anti-religious museums of atheism, where uh, where cruelty sat alongside crisp explanations of scientific phenomena. Icons and relics, meanwhile, were stripped of their mystique and treated as ordinary objects. The general public didn't seem to have been especially swayed by these exhibits, though they enjoyed the attractions themselves. The most popular of these museums remained open as late as the 1980s, as reported by the New York Times. All the while, the nominally independent League of Militant Atheists uh, dis disseminated anti-religious publications, organized lectures and demonstrations, and helped atheist uh, propaganda work its way into almost every element of socialist life. The popularity of these publications didn't always indicate that atheism was winning out, says Minor. Some believers bought atheist publications because that was when they found out what was going on. It was, it was a devastating and cruel reality, and it is one that we see as an expression of atheism and have uh, throughout, again, the history of the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, names such as Pol Pot and Cambodia might come to mind, and of course the atrocities committed by the People's Republic of China, among others. This is the devastating reality and so as people begin to spin what's happening in the Middle East, and they say, see, this is another indication that you religious people are at fault. If only we could move beyond, and this is not to undermine, by the way, or to ignore the religious overtones and the direct conflict between Muslims and Jewish people, uh, especially as it relates to the nation of Israel. But when people look at this general discussion and they see war at, at any point, or they see especially conflicts of ideology and religion, then they say if we can only eliminate or eradicate religious expression and belief, then our society will improve, and we will move beyond that to a better place for human thriving. But this is simply not the case. When people make these arguments, they are making intellectually shallow and historically inaccurate arguments. The reality is that war will continue. Death, massacres, human rights violations, they will continue so long as we endure in a fallen world because there is the reality of sin. And all people, by the way, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To our third point today, or our challenge for the believer who's listening, Christian, you better know your eschatology. When I talk about eschatology, your mind might have said, what is that? Well, it is simply the study of last things. The study of last things matters. I've heard many believers through the years, even pastors, say, I don't need to know end times prophecy. We think of matters of doctrinal significance to be things such as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we should, the inerrancy of Scripture, 
uh, their role of the church and God's mission for the church, of our unity, of our love for one another. And these are doctrines that we should certainly maintain. But when it comes to topics such as end times prophecy, so often the tone changes and people treat end times prophecy as though it is trivial, as though it doesn't matter. You don't really need to know uh, what you believe about end times prophecy, about what happens at the end, about God's future plans for Israel, about conflicts that can happen in the Middle East. You don't have to understand those things in any way. They are insignificant. They are trivial. And perhaps people can make claims like that, and perhaps those claims work until the first missile is launched, the first barrier is torn down, and the first bullet is fired in Israel. Suddenly, your eschatology matters. Suddenly, your unbelieving co-workers and friends and family want to know, is this something that happens in, in the Bible? Is this a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? Is the world going to end? What's happening? You, as a follower of Jesus, might begin to wonder, do I understand all of Scripture? Does it make sense? Do we have any answers provided in Scripture for anything that happens in our contemporary society? Well, I want to address this topic in a few ways. The first is that I want to affirm the fact that our eschatology matters. Our understanding of last things matters in Scripture. And it matters for a number of reasons, but I'm going to give you four. The first is because fulfilled prophecy strengthens your faith. We want to know, did the claims that God makes, the prophetic utterances in the Old Testament, did they come to pass? Were they fulfilled? In our church, we're going to be looking in January at the second half of Daniel, and we're going to see that God spelled out what was going to happen through world empires, that we would have the uh, Medo-Persian Empire sack the Babylonian Empire, that they would fall to the Greeks and then ultimately to the Romans. This is in prophecy. It has been fulfilled. As we study passages such as that, and there are thousands in Scripture, as we do so, we are strengthened in our faith. We have increased confidence that God's Word is not simply the product of man. It, has, uh, it is God-inspired. It is, it is God-breathed. It is inspired by Him. Uh, it gives us confidence in our faith to hold fast to other fulfillments of prophecy and to the promises of God. We believe, of course, as followers of Jesus, that there awaits for us an eternity in the presence of the Lord throughout all time in the new heaven and new earth. We believe that. That is biblical prophecy, and our faith hinges. Uh, again, it, it hinges on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it finds its hope fulfilled in those promises, and it will certainly because God's promises never fail. Second, because prophecy is given for your preparation. In 2 Peter chapter 3, as it describes commands, and even at the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ, as it describes holding fast in our faith, it does so. It challenges us on the basis that these things are true, that they fill us with hope, that they inform us about what is going to come in the days what is going to come to pass in the days to come, and so we better be prepared. We ought to be prepared for that day when either we will go into the presence of the Lord through natural death or until we will be called into his presence through the rapture. So we ought to be prepared. Third, uh, prophecy is given for your hope. We have this tremendous hope that though we live in a fallen world where such evil happens, where wars go on, where there are terrorist organizations, where 
families sitting in their homes can have their doors kicked in and children can be kidnapped and young people at a music festival can be shot at point-blank range. We wonder, is there any justice? Is there any consequence for these evil actions? And we say, absolutely, there is. But not only is there justice in that evil is punished in eternity to come, but also we desire to see the reward for the righteous, that there is a blessing not because of our works, by the way, and we understand that as Christians, but because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for those who have responded in saving faith. So we have a hope. Our hope is not simply attached to what happens on the news, to what's trending on Twitter, to what is happening, or X rather, to what is happening in the Middle East at this moment as though all of our hope is lost in this world because this is as good as it gets. It is not. We have a far greater hope than that. And fourth, prophecy is a powerful evangelistic tool. As I said in my opening remarks on this section, right now you have people around water coolers uh, across the United States and every nation on the planet who are asking these questions. What does this mean? Where is this going to go? How's it going to end? How does everything end? Do we have any hope? Why do people behave in this way? As followers of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to speak into those moments and to, to inform people about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, a hope that, that secures us today and a hope for tomorrow and in eternity to come. As followers of Jesus Christ, this is a great opportunity we have as people are curious about our faith, as they're curious about what's happening. We have an opportunity to speak hope into their lives, to speak truth into their lives. Today, we understand that our, our doctrine on last things matters. The second thing I want you to understand about why you had better understand end times prophecy is because situations like this expose our core beliefs. I've preached many times that I believe that there is a distinction between Israel and church-age saints. That might seem like a trivial point, or people might think, why does that even matter? Why does it matter what... Uh, what God is doing in the world, my, what my relationship with Israel is, uh, what his promises to the, to the Jewish people are. Well, there, these core beliefs are important for a number of reasons. One, uh, they answer questions like this. Do you believe God made literal promises to Abraham? Do you believe that in Genesis chapter 15, when God described the boundaries of the territory that he was giving to the descendants of Abraham, that he intended to keep that promise? If you don't believe that's a literal promise, do you believe that his promise of the new heaven and new earth and his children who have responded in saving faith will spend eternity there? Do you believe that promise is literal or not? Do you believe that God has a future plan for the nation of Israel? Do you believe that the Messiah is, is going to return and, and reign over the nation of Israel? Do you believe that the church-age saints have replaced Israel for some reason? Does this issue not matter to you at all? Because you think, well, God doesn't have an ongoing purpose or a plain plan for the people of Israel. So it doesn't matter to me beyond the fact of human suffering. And by the way, that is significant. And that should matter to us uh, in general, uh, in and of itself. Uh, and there are a number of different core beliefs that we might have that would be exposed through situations like this. But the last one I will share with you here um, is, do you believe... Uh, do you believe uh, in that 
Israel has a future fulfillment in prophecy, that, that God had plans for Israel that are yet to be fulfilled, that were not realized uh, by Abraham's descendants in the Old Testament and the New Testament, haven't been realized throughout history to this point, but are yet awaiting fulfillment. I believe that there are prophecies that are yet awaiting fulfillment. For instance, in Genesis chapter 15, the, the land, the territory that was promised to Abraham's descendants, they have never occupied that full land. So I have to believe either that God doesn't keep his promises, that he didn't have a literal promise to them, or I believe that that is awaiting a future fulfillment. And, and I can tell you which one I believe. I believe that we are awaiting a future fulfillment. Well, situations like this expose our core beliefs, and they make us come face to face with what we believe about Israel, about church age saints, about God's promises in general. Are they literal? Does he keep them? Does he keep them generations later? Does he have a future plan as he promised? And so we wrestle with these things, and it's important that we do in situations like this and that we come to a greater understanding of the Word of God, thereby being filled with hope, being increasingly prepared, um, being hopeful, and being able to speak in clear terms as prophecy is a powerful, again, evangelistic tool. And so as I say that, I'm going to return to that question uh, from which I began this discussion, and that was this. There have been many claims that what is happening this week in Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I've heard this throughout this last week, and my question continues to be, which prophecy? Which prophecy specifically? Some have pointed to the uh, Battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel, and they have indicated that perhaps uh, because Iran uh, sponsors Hamas, that, uh, that that fulfillment is being realized, and especially if Russia gets involved. I want to talk about Ezekiel and about Gog and Magog next week in greater detail and a breakdown that prophecy, because I think it, it is important. Uh, but I don't believe that this fits the uh, picture of, of biblical prophecy. Um, I don't think that what is happening right now fits the picture of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel. I don't think that the events that are happening right now directly correspond with any particular promise in God's word regarding the nation of Israel as far as a conflict is explicitly described in Scripture. That's not to say that the events that are happening right now cannot or don't represent perhaps the players getting on the field, uh, wherein future uh, uh, biblical prophecies that await a future fulfillment will be realized. Uh, but I do think that there is a, a general tone throughout Scripture of hostility against the Jewish people as it relates especially to the surrounding people groups that is being realized. I'm going to share with you from a passage, and this is from Psalm 83. Some believe that Psalm 83 is describing a particular war, and if so, uh, they would believe that if uh, various nations that have yet to get involved in this conflict, but very well might in the upcoming hours or days, they would believe that perhaps uh, there is a specific conflict and this is it. I won't be dogmatic about it, but I, I am inclined to believe that is not what this represents. Instead, I think it represents uh, beliefs and, and hostility towards the nation of Israel by the surrounding people groups. It says this, and I'm reading from the NET translation. O God, do not be silent. Do not ignore us. Do not be inactive, O God. For look, your enemies are making a commotion. Those who hate you are hostile. They carefully plot against your people and make plans to harm the ones you cherish. 
They say, come on, let's annihilate them so that they are no longer a nation. Then the name of Israel will be remembered no more. Yes, they devise a unified strategy. They form an alliance against you. That's just the first five verses of the 83rd Psalm. I think that that general hostility that is described in Scripture, that it continues to be present in uh, Hamas and other groups such as that, whether it's Hezbollah, uh, the nation of Iran, uh, perhaps uh, other nations who sponsor their those sort of terrorist organizations and their activities. And so I do think that those sort of heartfelt uh, beliefs uh, and hatred towards the people of Israel are described in great detail in Scripture. But at this point, I don't see a direct prophecy to point to and say, see, this is the fulfillment. What happened on Saturday is the fulfillment of this chapter and verse in Scripture. And so as God's people, when we speak about prophecy, we need to do so in clear terms. When we simply throw this out there, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. We need to be able to answer which prophecy. We need to be able to point people towards a chapter and verse. And if we cannot, in cases like this, we can still point towards hostility that is described in Scripture. We can point towards the sinful actions and trends of people that we see throughout human history, and especially as it relates to trends and hostility and various emotions outlined in Scripture. But we need not distort the Word of God or try to jump on every single moment and say this is exactly a fulfillment of something that it is not. Although we do await the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies, and he has much to say about what's going to happen for the nation of Israel, for the surrounding nations, for all people in the world in the years to come. So we're going to unpack more of that in next week's episode. We're going to dive into some specific prophecies and look at what will happen as these nations continue to grow in their hostility towards the Jewish people. How will they respond in the future years or millennia, should the Lord tarry? What will happen to the nation of Israel? Does God yet have a future plan? As we wrestle with that question, as we study God's word throughout this week, especially in light of what's happening, perhaps with the TV on or our laptop in the background on providing updates of the news, we continue to pray as God has called us to do in his word. According to Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Would you join with me and so many around the world as we lift up the people in Israel today, remembering their suffering, speaking clearly about the evil that is happening, addressing the reality that in a fallen world because of sin, not because the reality of religion or religious ideologies in the world as though somehow that were holding back human civilization, but speaking of the very reality of sin, the rejection of God's character and of his word. As it comes to pass in our days before our eyes, that hostility as it continues to grow, as sin is continue to be explored and people continue to get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived as that continues to happen today. Believers, set your eyes on the promises of God. Know them clearly. They are there for your hope. They are there for your encouragement. They are there for your preparation. They are there to strengthen your faith. And they are there to provide to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ with a world that is lacking hope and even more so by the day. I look forward to continue talking about God's promises, not simply the reality of sin, of these devastating realities as we see human suffering, which should grieve us all. But next week, I look forward to talking about the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ 
and the promises that await his people. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.